This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We found that the happiest people had someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And if you think of all of those three points, they all have a high emotional component. And when we're checking in with people, you know, some, there could be a pure intent in the question, hey, Alex, how are you holding up during the pandemic? Think about how intentional curiosity can unlock that emotion and flip that question and say, hey, Alex, how are you taking care of yourself during this crazy, exciting time for you that you've launched your book? And how are you taking care of yourself to replenish your energy? And then I can dial into what your priorities are. Let's get into the show. You can help support the podcast grow to be the best possible show that it could be. Head over to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. Throw down a five-star rating, a long, long, in-depth review, or as short as you want it to be. And share with your friends and family and get them involved in the conversations. Interact with me on Instagram over at ByAlexHolmes on there. Drop me an email at alex at alexholmes.co. Happy to have conversations with you guys. I really appreciate you all for listening. Subscribe and be a part of a growing community of people who want to see this podcast grow and really have those impactful mental health conversations that we hope can change the way that we all look at each other and help us be the best possible people that we can be that's all let's get back to the show hello 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 again welcome back to another episode of time to talk the home of conversation around mental health masculinity healing and everything else in between this week, I am speaking to my esteemed guest, Riaz Megji. Riaz is a human connection expert based out in Canada, and he has 17 years of broadcast television experience, having spent a lot of time on City TV's Breakfast Television, MTV Canada, TEDx Vancouver, CTV News, and the Toronto Film Festival. He has experience building connection and conversation and he's put all of the tools that he has learned into his new book every conversation counts so this week we talk about all things human connection journalism and what it means to have a good and wholehearted conversation to get the best out of the person as well as learn something new about ourselves after the year that we have had behind screens in isolation and away from family and friends i'm sure we could find it hard to disagree with any of that. So this is a very warm conversation and I'm excited for you all to hear it. As ever, we will be unpacking this conversation on Talk More next week. So please send any questions you have to tttalkpod at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at byalexholmes. Until then, Until then let's get on with the show. So welcome to the show, Riaz Megji. Pleasure to have you here from what looks like sunny Vancouver. How are you doing? <laughs> Thanks, Alex. It's good lighting. In Vancouver, it only rains, but I'm glad it looks sunny, so we aim to please. 
Yeah, it looks uh, it looks very high quality over there. It looks nice. It's uh, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. But welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me on Time to Talk with Alex Holmes. Um, I appreciate you being here. Before we jump into you, I want you to kind of introduce yourself um, and just let people know who you are and why you're here. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I'm going to start by just congratulating you on your book. And I know we, we are in the same space. I am a human connection expert, author, and 17-year broadcast host. And now in the space of just really focusing on how people can get more intentional with their communication and connection and break out of autopilot mode. And when we heard about your podcast, we thought, hey, values are aligned. Let's see what we could explore together. A brilliant book called Every Conversation Counts. Thank you. The Five Habits of Human Connection that Build Extraordinary Relationships. And what are relationships if not extraordinary? We want them to be extraordinary and we want them to, to be great. But we're going to delve into that in a moment. But before we do, guys, I'm starting a new thing where I'm asking my guests to give me um, a piece of music. Because as you know, on my Feel Good Friday newsletter, I throw in a Spotify um, playlist at the bottom. Um, it's a piece of music that has kind of carried me through this moment um, for that week. And I share loads of different music um, with you guys. And I just wanted to see what my guests like, so I can pull together an amazing mixtape um, mixtape playlist for people to, to listen to. And um, so what would be on your playlist I love this concept. I mean, what a way to get to know somebody. Uh, yeah. Two songs stand out for me. Uh, one, I would go Bill Withers, uh, Lovely Day. And anytime there's been uh, a, a pivotal moment, I remember doing my last uh, television broadcast for a morning show on Breakfast Television Vancouver. Had done the show, woke up at 4 a.m. for over a decade. And it was just, you know, when you start that day and you want a good vibe, that's why people tune in. That's why people are connecting with your podcast. Uh, this was a song that if there's ever a pivotal moment, the day my book launched, same thing. I play that track, Lovely Day. It puts me in a good mood. So definitely Lovely Day. And, you know, over the course of the past year, I'm a huge R&B guy. So I'm a big fan of her. And I was so mm. proud that she won the Grammy for the song, I Can't Breathe. And knowing the turmoil that people had gone through in, in the past year, her songwriting is just so incredible. I absolutely love that song uh, in the sense that it just had such a profound message to connect everybody and feel the moment of what we've experienced and how we can create change. So lovely day for the uplifting mood and then for the intensity of just incredible songwriting. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd go, I can't breathe. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Those are brilliant choices. And guys, I will be throwing the playlist into the show notes maybe or it'll be in the newsletter so you guys can go and subscribe to that and actually find Riaz's choices that's Bill Withers lovely day and her I can't breathe I love her she's um like I remember a few years back and when I was just in love with all of the um her early mixtapes and whatnot but I didn't know what she looked like and I love the fact I didn't know what she looked like because she was so obscure and she was kind of always hiding herself then I went to the yeah. concert and I thought I would love it if I never got to see what she looked like at this concert I would I would love that as a concept um obviously 
she was at the concert so everybody could see what she looked like and it was a bit like oh it's a bit a bit deflating because you're like I, I, I love the I love the mystere of her not um of not kind of showing who she is or showing half of her face or all this stuff um but uh yeah she's amazing um and I love all of her music so that's uh, that's a great point of connection which actually leads us into your book so you know I do want to ask you about the book, but also I wanted to kind of get a bit of a, get an insight into what what you were like as a as a journalist, you know, um, and because that's something that we do share in common. We have had um, experiences in the newsroom. I'm unsure. I can't remember whether you told me that whether you still whether you're still there, or are you free from the bondage of the newsroom? <laughs> <laughs> Free bird, free bird, free bird. Yeah, yes, we love a free bird. Um, <laughs> so, what was it? What was it like for you? Does it? It was a great learning experience. Like, mm. if, if I look at the past two decades, I, I, I'm someone that, coming from a South Asian family, grew up with the expectation of getting that MBA. So I went from uh, being a business graduate with a focus on being an investment broker to pivoting after recognizing the passion for the presentation space. So in the early 2000s, my first gig was at MTV Canada as a producer Mm. and learning how to do that and learning how to write and and understand what goes into a good segment, what creates a great dynamic in a conversation, what, what was priceless. And then as the years progressed, working in arenas of interviewing on the red carpet for the Toronto International Film Festival, working for CTV News. And then, as I mentioned earlier, 10 years as a morning show host, um, television morning show host in Vancouver for Breakfast Television. The thing that I loved was the opportunity to unlock something Mm. with someone that you only have the chance to connect with in a live format. And you have five maybe six minutes on live television Mm -hmm. and how you truly lean in, uh, do the preparation, uh, create a safe space for them in the green room and then rapidly move at a pace, given how people are consuming content in a way you establish a realness, but you extract something that with the, you know, pure intent that the audience watching or listening is thinking, I'm going to use that and my days are going to be better. So I think the, the cycle, uh, whether it's in a newsroom or working on a daily show, one taught me efficiency, two, it taught me the importance of humanity, but three, and kind of the inspiration behind the idea of the book of what it means to suffer in silence. And some of the greatest interviews, they weren't the A-list celebrities. To me, the most fascinating interviews were the people that overcame adversity with high stakes when it was a life or death situation, when it was a rags to riches story and they could share what it means in such a relatable context. And that would inspire me as an interview to see what's possible. And at the end of the day, serve the audience in such a major way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, What was one of your best interviews that you can remember? Because um, the, what really resonated was with the, um, the, I did, I worked on um, entertainment for a year so I was kind of a year and a bit and I was uh obviously I was interviewing high profile people just like kind of meeting them and once the initial kind of you know buzz goes you're just like oh these are just regular people that we're speaking to but it wasn't that that was the best kind of conversations I had to have the interviews I had when I was working on local newspapers and working in um, on more like regional uh people and just having those conversations about 
about their lives? What was what can you remember as something as one of the like most key interviews that are quite defining of your career? Uh, a fun one that stands out as you kind of describe this mm. is one of my first and one of my last and how these two were connected with the same person. Okay. And the first big interview I ever did, which was MTV Canada, early 2000s, was with Shaggy. I mean, you talk about music <laughs> right off the top, so I, I'm going to go musical theme for this. Wow, and okay. this, is when, this is when his single, It Wasn't Me, was like the smash hit. And I'm coming at this from like the business critical mind. I'm going to research, ask the best questions. And I remember my producer at MTV kind of looked at the, you know, vetted the questions and said, yeah, okay, cool. You did your research, but, you know, where's the fun in this? This is shaggy. And I was so terrified of just being me. And I'm thinking I got to be so proper and I got to ask the, the, the right questions. I was forgetting about the humanity of the experience. So going in, I was thinking all about me and how I would come across. But Shaggy, to, to his credit, he is such a great interviewee. Even though I was in my head, he made it great. And 17 years later, and it was like July of 2019, Shaggy was in Vancouver again. And it was funny, we're doing this live interview on Breakfast Television Vancouver, and he, he didn't know. And I said, hey, uh, I just got to say to you, man, my first big interview was you two decades ago. And I brought the photo up from MTV back in the day. And he's like, whoa, look at this. And he's like, Shaggy's been known for bringing up younger talent. Like when you think of the people that have guested on his tracks, mm -hmm. they aren't the huge names, but he's such a great collaborator that brings people up. And he made a joke saying, hey, man, yet I have an eye for talent. You know, I saw something back in the day. Now here you are. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about the approach, it is it is. Over two decades, it evolved of how can you give as a presenter or a, a, a speaker and elevate that guest. And one of the biggest points of connection is not just asking for information, but asking for stories, because that's where emotion lives. And Shaggy was telling this beautiful story about being on tour with James Brown and what it was like to learn from the Godfather. And he just got into it. And for me, it's like, look at him shine. Mm -hmm. This is what he does best. And it was such a great full circle moment to remind me when I started. And if anybody's listening to this thinking, hey, they're, they're getting into a podcast or they're doing interviews and you're thinking all about yourself. Think about how you make that other person the star. And Shaggy was so gracious in the early 2000s. And he was the same dude two decades later. So I always appreciate uh, the authenticity uh, he mm -hmm. brought for the space. And actually, the, one of the greatest things I learned from Shaggy is, hey, don't sacrifice your authenticity for approval. And early on in my career, I was seeking approval. And later on, I just realized, just make it as real as possible. And that's mm -hmm. where beautiful moments are created. Yeah. Did you ever get that feeling of um, interviewing people? Because as journalists, you are interviewing so many people but you might build a strong connection with a celebrity who is on a junket, for example. And a junket, for those who don't know, is when um, a celebrity, like an actor, but actors are on tour for a movie and they are just like wheel, like reporters are literally just reeled in and out of these conversations. And you have like 10 minutes maximum sometimes, if, if you're lucky. Um, but sometimes it's five minutes. Um, and you've built up a strong connection with these actors for like five minutes and then you have to leave um and then you're thinking oh wow i really got to know the person and you see them again and then they're like 
Wii U sort of thing. Um, which, yeah. which, which makes sense because they're seeing so many people every day and they're literally doing their job. They roll out of, like, I mean, nowadays the, the junkets are online. So they roll out of their bed or and go to their Zoom and they're just in this green room, whatever, and they slide over. But did you ever have that feeling of like, you know, you know, so when you, when you interviewed Shaggy for the first time and then you were like, oh, that was an amazing interview. You made me feel so good. It was so great. Do, 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 do. Like, will he ever remember me? And then when you showed him the picture again, did he remember you? Did he was like, oh yeah, I remember you. Did he try and lie or did he remember? Like, what? No, no, that, that, that was the realness. You know, you, you get to the point uh, and having worked in television when, when, when people say, hey, don't you remember me? Yeah. I always try to do my best to just remind them and, and just say, hey, uh, t- take me back into the moment we shared because yeah. I never want to dismiss anybody uh, t- to Shaggy's credit. Did he remember me? No, but he still played along. It's kind of like the improv exercise of yeah. always just being yes and and, yeah. and making the conversation or moment expansive. So to Shaggy's credit, he was great. But to your question about the junkets, those are so hard to do. I mean, how do you connect with somebody knowing it, it's it's so orchestrated and you only have five to seven minutes, they're there promoting something. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to break through it because the guest could be in autopilot mode with the responses they give. Mm-hmm. But one moment that truly stands out for me, and this this was early on in my career too. I was 24 at the time, and there was a junket uh, happening in Vancouver. Ten interviews uh, lined up at a hotel, and David Copperfield, uh, the master illusionist, was was in Vancouver. And he was touring his show, and this was pre social media. When I did my research on David, I knew his show was all about dreams coming true, and. I'm, I'm such an analytical mind, so I try to understand how they do these things. But then I'm like, okay, who's who's David the guy? Mm. And I saw, okay, he bought property in the Bahamas. That's cool. Never been in the Bahamas. And he likes hip-hop music. 90s hip-hop R&B guy. I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe that'll come up. Who knows? Let's put it in the back pocket. And this was with MTV Canada. So we were like 10 out of 10. We were last on that day. And I just thought, this is the worst position to be in. Because one, he's tired. Two, he's probably been asked the same questions over and over. How's this going to go? And when we walked into the hotel room and the interview started, I could tell we were getting just one word answers. And in the Mm. back of my mind, I was thinking, I've got nothing. I've got absolutely nothing here. Mm. And, and, and maybe three minutes into the six or seven that we had with him, David flips the script and he says, hey, Riaz, my show's all about dreams. What's your dream? And I thought, damn, I, okay, this, <laughs> I need to make this good now. Otherwise, this is going nowhere. And mm. I said, okay, okay, l- look, uh, I'm sitting on the beach in the Bahamas. I'm sitting, I'm sipping on pina coladas, man. You're there with me, Dave. And I like call him Dave, like he's my best buddy, a complete yeah. stranger. Yeah. And, and, you know, a spark in this guy's eye lights up and he's like, you know, you know, I just bought property in the Bahamas, right? And I'm like, tell me more about this. So he starts <laughs> opening up about his love for the Bahamas. Yeah. Next thing you know, he starts talking about his love for hip hop music. He starts rapping. And then what ended up happening is at the end of the interview, I just said, hey, Dave, man, you're a lot of fun. If only we had more time, I take you out on the town. We go out, we do it right. And the interview ends. And David literally said, he's like, hey, well, I'm here for two nights. Can we go out tonight? And I thought he was joking because his assistant saw the bewildered look on my face. Mm. But in that moment, I said, yeah, she's, she was like, he's not joking. He wants to go out tonight. 
So what ended up happening was we connected after a show, mm-hmm. went to a local lounge in Vancouver, and it was fascinating watching all of these people, all local media were like, is Copperfield coming out tonight? And they were mm-hmm. throwing just generic questions at him of what it's like to be a celebrity, what it's like to have all of this success, fame, and fortune. And I could see this man was in a bubble mm-hmm. having been asked the same questions a thousand times over. And, you know, and being 24 at the time, I just looked at him and I thought the access we have here, this is almost like, this is such a unique social experiment. I literally looked at him point blank and said, look, you have all the fame and fortune any entertainer could ever ask for. Would you say you are happy as a person? Mm -hmm. And he paused and he paused so long and then looked at me to the point that I thought I pissed them off. But he said, you know what, Riaz? I did 200 shows a year. I'm always on the road. Sometimes I question who my true friends are and my relationship just fell apart. And he said, I struggle with it. And that moment, and you know, I document this in the book talking about what real connection is, that real connection, especially in the space we're in now, real connection isn't about perfection. Real connection is going first and embracing that imperfection and being real about what you're going through. And at such a young age, he switched the way I look at the whole business, like when you talked about being a journalist and you see celebrities and, you you know, people put them on this pedestal, but the human beings going through the same things we're going through. And that moment and that lesson taught me to bring more realness to the interviews and conversations we could have, whether they're on camera, in podcasts, or just in everyday communication. Mm. That is amazing. That is an amazing story. Because when you, when you go, I like what you just said about going further and when you go that bit further you get to a a completely different space you pass that veneer of this is what people expect of me and this is who I now he he or she or they are seeing who I am now and I want to be in their space I want them to take me on the town I want them to show me what it's like here I want them to give me that feeling of of humanity again. I want them, I want to feel that that connection again and I think that's so pivotal to how how like how we exist as humans, you know? And um I was watching Avatar the other day mm. and I've been on this really just <laughs> just really bizarre spiritual journey and I've just been kind of um really just in looking at what it means to be connected and what connection looks like and why we and, and how far we've strayed from the path or how far down the path we are in order to kind of head to transformation. And whatnot. So I'm looking at Avatar and I'm like, wow, okay, so they're in Pandora. They have all of their, you know, they've, um, I'm going to be, I've forgotten all of the, the names of, the, of what the people, the people there, et cetera. But they are um, people like humans have come to, avatar and they're looking at the way that um the people of pandora are treating pandora and the way that they are so connected with the world and so connected that every word like hangs and lingers Mm. with them you know you can see that communication that connection with the physicality the trees the animals like even when they kill they are they say a prayer over that animal to kind of really send the animal spirit back into the earth so that you know, it's that, it's that whole mindful understanding. So when I hear stories like what you've just said and, um, and I, and I, you know, 
and I meet conversationalists and people who do interviews and um and the like are really kind of searching for that feeling of that that deep kind of knowledge and the deep understanding and I wanted to speak to you just a bit about some of the before we get into the five habits because we're getting there guys we're gonna get there but I wanted to speak to you just about some of the idiosyncrasies of communication and conversation now Mm. I thrive on I love conversation regardless um i love one-on-one conversations is why i have this podcast but i also do a lot of group work so i do kind of facilitate conversation in in one way or another but one thing that people seem to be struggling with um i'm an introvert but people do struggle with small talk Mm. now how do we get by and get past small talk people have this really bad understanding of what it is and i feel like you're the guy tell us (laughs) why small talk is fine or not fine what's your take small talk to me and observing this over the course of my career for many acts as a defense mechanism and it has become this defense mechanism to prevent us from becoming emotional and prevent the embarrassment of becoming emotional in front of someone we don't know. Mm. And it can also prevent us from the fear of triggering someone emotionally because we don't have that deeper relationship yet. But if we want to take that deeper, I mean, the first thing people, this is the most interesting part of the pandemic, Alex, is that (laughs) small talk used to be all about the first thing people talk about is weather. Now it's, Hey, have you got your vaccination? Yeah, how how are you doing? The top of mind psychological struggle. That's the new small talk. Mm -hmm. But here's the silver lining behind what we learned in the past year. If we look at the categories of what matters most to people, they'll talk about their career. They'll talk about their health. But the magic of turning small talk into an invaluable vehicle of connection lives in how we explore each other's relationships and how we can approach our conversations with less transactional information and focus on exploring more emotion, less info, more emotion. That's how we're going to start to transform small talk. And I'll give you an example. The uh, late uh, psychiatrist, Gordon Livingston, his work focused all about happiness and the happiness equation. And in his research, he found that the happiest people had someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And if you think of all of those three points, they all have a high emotional component. And when we're checking in with people, you know, some, there could be a pure intent in the question, hey, Alex, how are you holding up during the pandemic? Think about how intentional curiosity can unlock that emotion and flip that question and say, hey, Alex, how are you taking care of yourself during this crazy, exciting time for you that you've launched your book? And how are you taking care of yourself to replenish your energy? And then I can dial into what your priorities are of how you position yourself, how you take care of yourself, what matters to you. And when I was in the green room interviewing people, the the one question that I learned along the way was really focusing on what is the priority in somebody's mental space. So I could script out all the questions in the world. You could show up for a job interview. You could go to a networking event when we're able to do that in person again and think of all your questions. But the simple question I would throw to guests is, Hey, thanks so much for coming in. You know, let me know, hey, what's on your mind? And then I'd get out of the way. And the first things that would come out of their mouth, everybody's worried in small talk of what they're going to say. 
think about the simplicity of how you can get to the point of what you're going to ask and then get out of your own way and watch what people give you. And then that skill of leaning in and listening intently to pick up those cues they're giving you to understand where people are at, that's where the magic happens. And that's where we navigate that emotion. And you've done this beautifully asking me for stories, not just answers already in the beginning of this conversation. That's another big part of it. Ask for stories, not just answers and get to the the emotion that exists within for someone. Do you think um, of everything you've just said and it would be a, great podcast if i was just staring here for ages and being like wow that's amazing (laughs) Um, but what i was gonna say was um when it comes to men in these spaces is that have you noticed that there's a slight difference in communication um at all my personal observation is there's still a hesitation and fear with deep vulnerability that vulnerability has the connotation with weakness. When I'm working with organizations, uh, that, that, that's a common question that comes up and it's always for men. If I'm vulnerable and I go first with this realness of my struggle, is that gonna make the team look at me like I'm, like I'm inferior, like I'm less? And I find that fascinating that it's always, in my personal experience, sample size of one, But the organizations I talk to, it's a male-driven question. Meanwhile, on the female side, they embrace it fully. And I think that that's such a a great example to follow of going first. And there's actually an important point about vulnerability. And there's a psychological concept known as the pratfall effect, where if we want that, the pratfall, the the pratfall effect. Yeah. Have you heard of the pratfall effect? No. So this is really what outlines how vulnerability works. And if we haven't established our point of strength or credibility, and we're going first with that vulnerability, it can actually work as an overshare and create a greater divide instead of bringing people closer together. But if we've done that work, and and you're this authority in the time to talk space, and then you're opening up about this realness, Alex, then people are going to be drawn in. And that courageous reveal will act as a powerful point of connection. So the big lesson I find with conversations is establish credibility before vulnerability. Because if you just go straight out the gate with that vulnerability and you haven't proven your worth, people are already questioning your competence your great share, even though you go in it with great intent, will be a disservice to what you're trying to do. That does make sense. You have to set the framework for it and create the space that's safe enough so that everybody feels safe. Like, yeah. You don't want to throw somebody into something that they're not necessarily prepared for because a bit of unpreparedness is okay, but you do have to set up the environment so that there are some escape routes, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting with that. Um, but thanks for that. Um, let's look at the five habits that you have. Shall we? Yeah, let's, let's do so, it. So we've got five habits of human connection that you've got here. Yeah. You've got listen without distraction. Make your small talk bigger, which we've kind of covered. 
Put aside your perfect persona. Be assertively empathetic and make people feel famous. Um, I, you know, we've co- we've covered small talk in, in in the way that we did, but I do want to kind of talk to you about the perfect persona. Now, there's this image of you know in a space like my like the one um the one I'm in the one we in the one we've been in um. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day when I was doing a few interviews for my book and they were like, oh, I was asking them about their radio show and kind of how they're finding it, why, like, you know, has it been good for them, all this stuff. And they were just like, it's so strange because it feels like they have to put on this radio voice, face, yeah. person, personality. And, um, and to some extent, I, I agreed because I was like, to some extent, I put on a hyper... Um, hyper exaggerated version of myself for the podcast, I guess, in a way, while still maintaining the authenticity that I have. But is it is it is it practical? Is it realistic in a way to kind of get rid of that persona that we have? Obviously, perfection isn't real, but is there a way to kind of like how do you manage that persona? How did you manage that persona when you were on TV for all that time and doing what you were doing for so long? Um, how have you managed when you came out of that how did you manage to shift the big way that I navigated this to unlock practicing imperfection Mm. versus the perfection was shifting the mentality of being a taker which I was to being a giver and what I mean by this Kind of goes back to what I mentioned in the beginning with Shaggy. Okay. And that's just, that's just one example of thinking of how great I come across. Like a- any speaker or presenter, you'll know right away. Are they there for the validation? Or are they there with a service mentality? And that shift to the service mentality really happened of just learning from the leaders that really connected anytime I had the chance to interview them and hear their stories, their success stories really came from them articulating the struggle. Cause that's where real connection lives in any story you're going to tell connection happens in the struggle. And I, I credit you. I don't know how much I can share, but before we started rolling, you got real about the experience of one week after launching your book of what you're feeling and I love that realness of the, the emotional roller coaster ride you go on because there's few people uh, in my personal circle that I could relate to that a week after launching the book in February, I felt depressed. And I'm like, why do I feel depressed? I finally released the book I wanted to the world. The press is picking it up, but it's just you work so hard for something. And maybe this is uh, maybe someone training for a marathon or some big physical goal, and then you hit it. And then Time passes in your, and in your head, in my head, I was thinking, okay, now what? And it's reminding me to savor the moment and take care of myself as well, because we're, maybe one of the great lessons of the pandemic was don't take your health for granted for all of us. And I'm guilty. I would take my health for granted when I was trying to write this book and get this message out and, and just work all the time. Mm-hmm. So being, being the giver, not the taker was a big part of this change of putting aside the perfect persona. Because when you give a piece of yourself, and I'll credit Darren Hardy, who, who wrote an excellent book called The Compound Effect. 
I saw him speak in Vancouver and I was given the gift of having 20 minutes to sit down with him. And he, Alex, he's interviewed some of the greats in the world, some of the great interviewers. And I said to Darren, I said, what is the secret to getting people to open up? And he said two words. And I mentioned them earlier on in this interview, but I live and die by these words now, go first. And he said, if you want people to trust you, Go first with something real in your life and show you trust them. If you want to motivate somebody, go first and find out what motivates them and help them achieve that. Because the three most important questions we all ask ourselves that I've observed over the years, the three questions we ask ourselves upon our initial encounter with anyone are, do you care about me? Are you listening to me? And can I trust you? And you can show you care by the research you do. You check out someone's blog, their social media posts, you watch their movie, their album, you read their book. You're listening. You could prepare all the research, but true listening. I mean, one of the habits of this book is listen without distraction. Mm-hmm. Get to that. And, and I talk about the notion of over-prepared to improvise. Do all that work to show that, hey, I've got the confidence coming into this. That research, that work, that caring, that's going to give you confidence. But real connection happens when you lean in, listen, and improvise. And that trust really comes from going first. So I I think there's a big opportunity right now for all of us in the realness of this pandemic with a universal commonality of a fear of a virus, the fear of our health and well-being, but the commonality of a struggle together and look out for one another has unlocked some powerful and deep conversations. So going first is a big part of this, putting aside your perfect persona. So you mentioned about the listening. Um, I've, you know, I've been told so many times and obviously experienced so many times about men and not listening. And there's a really interesting video. I mean, I put in my book about not, not wanting to have to fix things all the time, mm. uh, but listen, and just be, provide an empathetic ear. So it's probably going to, we're going to talk about listening without distraction and being assertively empathetic in in this space. But there's a video called, it's not about the nail. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, oh. And it's like, it's a couple. They're sitting on a sofa. The woman has a nail, a black bang right in the middle of her forehead. Yeah. And she's talking about this irritation on her forehead. And she's there. Talk about his irritation to boy. And her partner is like, okay, but if you just take the nail out, pull the nail out, and it will it'll be fixed. Just take the nail out. And she's like, no, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to what I'm saying. And he's like, oh, but the nail's there. You're just going to have to just yank it out and just get it out of your head. And then she's like, it's not about the nail. It's about the, com- the conversation and the communication. And then he kind of goes to a point where he's like, oh, Okay, so tell me how, tell me how that feels to have the nail. Tell me it, that must suck. That must do all of all of that. And it just kind of really emphasised to me about how how men show up in conversations, and how we kind of get to this space where we're like, we're trying to think of how to respond rather than actually listening to what is being said. And then we have this whole miscommunication and then arguments and feelings of disconnection and um, abandonment and loneliness in a space where you're really, when you're with somebody, because the objective is to not be so alone in these conversations, right? Mm. 
So tell me some more about listening without distraction and what you've kind of gleaned from that. Yeah. Like, habits. Okay. So because you've brought up the example of, I'm going to check this video. It's not about the nail is what you said, right? Yeah. It's not about the nail. So I'm going to check this out. Thanks for that gift right there. Uh, okay. Because you're pointing out the difference between men and women, one of the studies that I came across in, in creating the book was created by social psychologist Timothy Wilson. And what he found was giving men and women a choice, 67% of men and 25% of women opted to receive mild electric shocks rather than sitting alone in a room with their own thoughts for 15 minutes. You're given a choice. You could sit alone, 15, practice mindfulness, or you could get electric shocks during that time. That statistic is already speaking to the fact that maybe our male minds are working so much quicker. Uh, I've been guilty over the years of that tendency and intention to try and fix before I feel the words. And one of the opportunities, I believe, in becoming a more effective listener is to really look at the priority of discovery before dismissal. And how, how can we ask the questions before we start telling the answers? In this polarized climate we've lived through, many of us are so quick to interrupt, give unsolicited advice, challenge an idea before we've truly heard or acknowledged someone. And on a baseline, how can we lead with discovery before dismissal is an important part of this listening piece. How can we? If we practice it, absolutely. I think we get distracted in many ways. One of the ideas and the habit is called listen without distraction because I'm an advocate for combating the distractions. I mean, science shows our brains absorb uh, four to 500 words per minute. That's our capability. But the average person speaks at a rate of 125 words per minute. So you think about that mental capacity that's available, that other 75% is so easily caught up in technological distraction. So interesting. It's so, it's so easily caught up in emotional distraction. If we disagree with someone, what happens? We shut ourselves off because we we're thinking of how we're going to challenge and we just jump in. We're not even listening anymore as soon as someone disagrees or we just get caught up in daydreaming. So one of the big challenges when someone is in front of us, especially when there's polarizing perspectives, is to audit yourself. If you're listening to this right now, audit yourself and, and think about we're all too smart for our own good. Our brains are too smart for us. But, but check in on a daily basis and ask yourself, what are the distractions that get in the way of me truly hearing someone? And when you can start to pinpoint that, it's the same exercise of if you're a presenter and not realizing you use filler words. You don't know unless you watch the playback, unless you're intentional with the practice. So the opportunity here is to be intentional with listening. Okay, understand what gets in the way. And then when you understand that, start picking them off. Not all at the same time. That'd be too overwhelming, but maybe just choose one. Hey, I get emotionally distracted when... I disagree with someone and then I stop listening. Focus on how you can stay open and explore something different so you get to productive outcomes instead of unproductive confrontations. So that's an ex exercise for you listeners to check 
in with yourself in the midst of a conversation because we do get lost in the conversations a lot of the time. Our minds go there, there, everywhere when people are talking. When sp- and I've seen it when specific people are talking, if they don't really like engaging with what they're saying, they just drift away and they try and drift back in when they've met. And I've done it before myself. Like I've been in a conversation with somebody and it's like I've drifted away but it's only probably been one or two seconds, but it feels like it's been five minutes and I've lost half of what they've said. And, mm. and, 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 and the worst kind of thing to do is to ask somebody to repeat themselves. I find in my, yeah. in my that's my own uh, stuff <laughs> that comes with that. But I think it's like, it's hard to, when you're asking somebody to repeat themselves, um, unless you genuinely misheard, it's a question of you're distracted from what they're saying. You're either away with your thoughts or um, something's physically distracting you. Like people are so entwined on their phones and, um, you know, kind of deep in social media when they're trying to do simultaneous things at once and their brain is really just saying, let's focus on one thing. And something, I've been in conversations with people sometimes and they've been on Twitter, for example, having a conversation with me and I'm trying to really connect and they're, you know, they're in the space and you feel like they're trying to connect with you and then they've seen something that's interesting or more interesting, quote unquote, on Twitter and they just pull themselves away. And um, how do you respond to that? If you're the person that is speaking or kind of sharing and you're doing all these things like being vulnerable and listening to them and all of that stuff, but yet you don't feel heard in that space. How do you personally do that yourself? And okay, so about how you can help everybody else. <laughs> how do you do yeah, that? Yeah, that, that, that is such a common thing. It, it, it's known as fubbing. When you're on fubbing. your phone, fubbing. Yes. When you're on your phone and, and you're looking down and someone's trying to talk to you, and there's research showing how it can create resentment in relationships. And even the notion of having your phone face down on a table thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm connecting with you. I'm here with you. The awareness of that distraction impacts your cognitive ability and takes away your ability to listen by 20%, proven by research. So how do I handle that personally? I'll explain the dynamic with my wife who, who has this incredible ability to multitask. I cannot, if I'm looking at my phone, I cannot, I'm in that Twitter rabbit hole. I, I cannot listen to you. If I'm down, I'm not listening to you. But she can actually do both. And for me, everyone's got a different communication style. What I say to her, because I want to respect what she's doing. There may be a priority she needs to address. She's an entertainment lawyer, so she's getting emails 24-7. But, but what I say to her is, how about I just let you finish? So it's not, hey, pay attention to me. I'm still prioritizing her priority. You know, I'm going to let you finish before I go on. And then I get her eyes on me being like, no, what? I can do both. And I'm like, it's really important that I have you here with me. And she's like, but I can do both. And it's almost like everyone's got their same style. But instead of crashing into her saying, hey, put your phone down. It's like, hey, uh, just, you know, I, I, just, I just want you to have the chance to finish what you're doing and then come back with me. And that personally has worked well for me as a polite way of letting somebody know that this technological distraction is getting in the way. But it's saying, uh, I'm going to let you just do what you need to do first, because that, that's important. 
And it's a subtle way to do it, but it's been an effective way for people to be like, oh, you know what? I'm so sorry. I'm going to put that away. I'm back here with you. I do want to speak to you about um, being assertively empathetic, how that kind of manifests. I've spoken a lot about empathy on this show um, and on this channel, um, but could you kind of explain what, what empathy is to you? Yeah, the main concept of assertive empathy. I have a lot of lawyers and accountants. They like to be assertive. So they're like, empathy, uh, we don't know. We got to get the job done. Assertive. Okay, hold on. Maybe I can jump on board with this. It really comes down to relationship first, logic second. And if we want to empathize with someone and value that relationship as our initial priority, it comes down to acknowledging them. And I mean, sometimes there have been some difficult, Alex, there have been some difficult conversations in this past year. And if we're the ones that have to relay it, we get in our heads. It's so easy to get in our heads of how difficult it's going to be to relay this, this devastating news to somebody. And it's easy to lose sight of how they're going to receive it and how they're going to be impacted and how they're going to react to it. And that discovery over dismissal is a unifying theme throughout the book because Intentional curiosity is a big part of the sort of empathy. So acknowledging them and, and letting them embrace what you've shared with them. And then using curiosity in a neutral way of how does that feel? What do you need right now? How can I help with this? So we're not leading with any assumptions of what they're going to feel and work through. It's giving them the space to talk. And when they've done it, then confirming your understanding by recapping what they've shared so you are on common ground. I'm not making an assumption of how you've interpreted the news. I'm recapping it and we have agreement on it. And then once we've worked through the relationship and prioritized that, that can help disarm the resistance that will happen when the logic sets in. Mm -hmm. And the big part of the logic is how can we focus on what we agree on? And asking, you know, really key questions of, okay, so what does your ideal scenario look like given the circumstance? What are you really struggling with in, in this situation? What would it take for this to work for you? And when you start getting those answers, the beautiful part of it is that by really having intentional listening, you can create an outcome where you're on the same side of that productive collaboration. Assertive empathy really comes down to productive collaborations. And if we prioritize the relationship and then bring in the logic with questioning, focusing on what we can agree on, and then focusing on accountability too, because in some cases we need to keep people accountable. But if we lead with that accountability, we're going to have resistance right off the bat. So it's relationship before uh, tackling curiosity uh, to, to navigate that resistance. Hey, hey. that's, this is how we communicate guys tap into that but that's us in the present time now there's a section in your book about the future now this is, the future is scary for everybody nobody knows what's going on we have all this all these dystopian films about <laughs> what is to come you know on back to the future made in 1985 in their version of 2015 there would have been hoverboards and like you know um you know instant meals they, that pop up in microwaves and everybody's like walking upside down like with suction boots and stuff <laughs> that did not happen in 2015 i was super disappointed but <laughs> when we start to look at 
what's going to how we're going to communicate in the future we've already seen a hybrid kind of understanding of what communication looks like now with uh text speak with the fast and quick nature of twitter um and you know instagram and how we communicate is becoming more and more virtual now we've entered in now we've entered into a pandemic we've been in a pandemic for over a year you know we are communicating primarily online virtually um there's etiquette had to be learned <laughs> about how to communicate how to leave a meeting clubhouse has the option of leave quietly <laughs> and like as <laughs> if there was any other option to do that sort of thing you know um all of this stuff and I wanted to get your take on some of the points that you put in the book about, you know, the future of communication. And I just wanted to get an overview as to what you think is going, what you think is going to look like, and will we survive it? When I look at it all, and in the book we make predictions on the on the future of human connection, and uh, to me, the future is human. No matter where we are, if you're in customer service, if you're in sales, if you're navigating virtual realities, and obviously virtual communication has created a new choreography of connection of how we read each other uh, through a camera. I think the most important question for any of us to ask ourselves is, how can we create meaningful human connection regardless of what the world looks like? And that requires us to simplify things. I mean, these habits in the book, they're not groundbreaking, but through personal observation, to me, they are powerful reminders of the basics that we have lost along the way. We live in this culture of convenience. We live in this culture of everything moving so rapidly. But the one thing that people will will crave, and I believe we're gonna be in this hybrid reality, Zoom's not going away. Look, Alex, this vehicle provided us the opportunity to connect on your podcast, which is incredible, across the world. The accessibility has opened up brand new doors. But people will crave connection no matter where we are. So if you're listening to this right now and this conversation has resonated with you, the question I encourage you to ask yourself, no matter where we are, no matter where the hoverboards are, if you're walking upside down, How can you establish a meaningful human connection in every conversation you are going to enter into? And think about what you can learn. Think about what you can bring. And I think it also, I truly believe it also uh, revolves around always just maintaining a beginner's mindset. Because in the beginner's mind, there are infinite possibilities for connection. That opportunity to learn, there is no dismissal. You're leading with discovery. But in an expert's mind, there are only a few. And if we maintain that beginner's mindset with everyone we interact with, these, these relationships we build are going to be pretty damn powerful in our lives, personally and professionally. And well into the future too. Into the future, yeah. I want to say thank you so much for talking to, talking to me about this book. So that, guys, that's Every Conversation Counts, the five habits of human connection that build extraordinary relationships i have some final questions i call them the fine i call them the resilient 12 you, you don't get asked all 12 don't worry okay um okay. but they are a mixed mash of just various questions that i have pulled together out of the crevices of my mind trying to be creative i think it's is it the left brain that's the creative brain i can't remember which one it is um 
Do you have a daily mantra, routine or habit that has been hard to shake, pick up or do in the past 12 months? Daily mantra that I picked up, uh, and this was from uh, one of the editors on my book, is that you can't edit a blank page. And being someone that gets caught up in overthinking things, remembering, stop judging myself, stop limiting myself, put it on the page. Uh, I think there is a book that says, write without fear, edit without mercy. And that is a beautiful sentiment. Put it on the paper, test it, try it, edit it, put it out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. That is so important. I mean, guys, in writing this book or just any kind of writing or any kind of idea, just the editing, just just create the thing so that you can edit the thing after, you know, don't worry about what's going on straight away, unless it's live, guys. If it's live, (laughs) then, you know, you know. Then you're naked. Good luck. Foot to the pedal. And there we go. So it's just, it just is what it is, but you can prep as much as you can for that. Um, so your 15 year old self and your 70 year old self meet in a park. What conversation are you witnessing? What were you like as 15? I feel like you were fun. I was a socially anxious introvert at 15. That, that's such an interesting question because 15 was a pivotal time for me where I changed high schools. I saw my brother when I was 15 years old perform on stage with a theater improv troupe at North Delta Senior Secondary School in British Columbia in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, I struggle with just introducing myself to people. I couldn't talk to girls. I couldn't do anything. But you when I saw him on that stage... You would never guess that now. I, I, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm glad that comes across. I, I credit my brother for the inspiration to one, switch schools, two, take an acting class. And when I was 17, uh, I think the 17-year-old would say to the 15-year-old, hey, don't take yourself so seriously. Just just try it. Just just stay open to the possibility. That's how that conversation would go. Okay. Okay. Stay open to the possibility. Interesting. Um. What do you do when you are feeling low in confidence and how do you build yourself up? I'm very fortunate to have an incredible teammate in my wife and she sees it all, the highs, the lows. And if I'm feeling low that day, one, I I communicate it. I used to be someone that suppresses it or hides it. I'm now open about it. So one, she doesn't take it personally. Like, did I do something? What's up with this guy? He's off today. But it's letting her know today's not a great day. And accepting it and being real with the wave. And anyone listening to this, I have a good feeling you've had some good days and bad days. But embracing the bad days of they're not all going to be great. And that's okay. So I think being more real with it, accepting of it, communicating it and then waking up the next day and and, and getting back to just resetting the goals and really focusing on, on the gratitude piece. Like a quick point of research was that writing three points of gratitude every single day for 21 days leads to a more optimistic mindset for six months Mm. and practicing that art of gratitude before I would roll my eyes to it. Now I understand on those bad days when confidence is low, it's a reminder that it isn't as bad as I think it is. 
And that practice helps me shift back into a positive space. So one, I'm doing the work with that, but two, being honest and communicating what I'm really thinking and feeling. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rias, for joining me today. Time to talk. Uh, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Uh, yeah. Th- thank you, man. I, I appreciate this conversation. Uh, if, if you're looking for more, uh, riazmegji.com. It's R I A Z M E G H J I.com. I know it's a tricky name. It's been butchered all my life. I'm sorry in advance. But if this resonated with you and this message of human connection, um, is something you want to dive more into check out the site there's all kinds of free resources on there and jay check out the book if uh if it's something that really speaks to you right now yeah, so thank I'll you be, alex no worries i'll be throwing the the show the the book into the show notes so everybody can go and grab yourself a copy and head over to riaz Megji. did you say dot com um, com yeah. yeah dot com where you can find all the information about the human connection expert just an amazing amazing guy honestly um, I will be seeing you in Vancouver one day um, when Please, we can fly yes. and and well, we can fly, but when we when I feel comfortable enough to get onto a plane, that can be dragged out of my house and on, and onto a onto a flying vehicle across the seas, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that time when we can when we can meet up and and have that have these meaningful conversations offline. Guys, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe, and you know where to find me in all the places that matter. And I look forward to catching you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. This show is produced by Pure Creation Media. You can support the podcast by rating, reviewing the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. As the show gets more reviews and more ratings, the more the show can grow. Have a happy week. Until next time, I'll catch you then.